bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So Canada's love-hate relationship with the Canada goose continues. Story at 11. No, actually, the story is right now. So in the central Saanich area on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, the Capital Regional District is looking at ways of reducing the population of Canada geese on the island, well, around the central Saanich area. So there's estimates of 10 to 15,000 Canada geese on Vancouver Island and about three and a half thousand to seven thousand of them winter in the central Saanich area. According to Ducks Unlimited most of North America's Canada goose populations are stable or slightly increasing. Uh, Resident populations however have increased dramatically. The resident geese now outnumber rival migrant populations in each one of the North American flyways. So this is this is really interesting um, that I, I, I just learned this researching this story that there are these two groups of Canada geese populations in North America, residents and the migrants. Canada geese are uh, long-lived um, migratory birds um, they have relatively high survival rates, but low reproductive rates. However, uh, according to Ducks Unlimited, the larger bodied subspecies, which make up the residents uh, in most of the flyways in North America, have the highest reproductive and the highest survival rates. So in comparison to the migrant Canada geese, the resident Canada geese across North America begin nesting at a younger age. They have larger clutches and they enjoy relatively stable and high reproductive success. Their nest success and gosling survival is much higher than in the migratory Canada geese populations. So urban areas in Canada have created environments that these resident geese thrive in. So urban cities, urban green spaces, um, waterways, uh, water impoundments, uh, and agriculture areas. So what's happening in the central Saanich area on Vancouver Island is these resident Canada geese are having a very high impact on some agriculture producers. Normally, we think of Canada geese coming into agriculture areas in the fall after the crops have been taken in and they're feeding on the spilled grains and the corn and the residual pulse crops um, of peas and stuff that couldn't, couldn't be gathered up by the big farm machinery. But in this case, what the resident Canada geese are doing is they're actually hammering the agriculture crops in the springtime when the plants are first emerging from the ground. One farmer in the area that uh, I read in a news story figures that it's costing him about $10,000 a year 
to deal with these Canada geese uh, or, or the impacts of the Canada geese coming on onto his agriculture area and um, farmers are, are wanting something done. So some of the measures that the Capital Regional District is looking at is uh, a cull, which I'm not sure if, um, you know, by cull they mean bringing in hunters and allowing hunters to take the birds uh, and utilize them, or if they're just talking about, um, you know, professional contract shooters, it would be just shooting uh, as many and then uh, getting rid of them. Hopefully that's not what they mean by a cull. And also they're looking at um, controlling the population mostly by uh, egg addling. So going into areas where the Canada geese are um, nesting in the springtime and um, shaking the eggs and killing the, um, the embryos and then putting the eggs back. Uh, it's called, called egg addling. Uh, there's another method where they'll replace the eggs with dead eggs. Uh, then they take the live eggs and freeze them and kill um, kill the uh, embryos inside and then keep rotating these dead eggs out into the nests of, of live Canada geese as a means to control their population. You know, I'm, I'm much more f personally um, for the idea of of a of a harvest removal and and allowing hunters to go in even if they're contract hunters you know just very specialized they may have to you know be depending on the area and agriculture areas they may be taken with centerfire rifles they're done from a distance you know that sort of thing as opposed to sort of the way we do it via shotgun hunting and 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 make use of these these birds even if they go to the food bank uh or people in the community uh in need or or whatever um you know i think when we when we have these issues of overpopulated wildlife in and around where people are living and trying to farm i would much rather see these animals put to use um than then animals culled and not used, or in this case, trying to control the population via, uh, you know, egg addling, that sort of thing. Geez, you could, you know, let them nest, do their thing naturally, um, and then harvest the the young birds before, you know, the fall or or earlier in in the springtime. One of the things I covered in these stories of the problems people were having on coastal British Columbia with the Canada geese is that overall the population is still a fraction. The Canada goose population is still a fraction of what it was a hundred years ago in the Pacific Flyway. So the birds are recovering, their numbers are increasing. However, as Ducks Unlimited pointed out, uh, we've got this dichotomy across all the flyways of these migrant versus these resident birds. And uh, it's super interesting uh, that they have that dynamics, non-migratory residents. We also have the same thing with snow geese in the central flyway in North America. We have snow geese that will come into the southern prairie regions in Canada where there's the agriculture areas and they do a lot of damage. Then there's the, the ones that will carry on and go right through into the Arctic to nest. 
And in some of the spring hunts that have been established in Canada for snow geese populations that are a problem in the agriculture area, they time it based on when those resident, southern resident birds will come into the agriculture areas and not the ones that are just stopping over to carry through to the Arctic. So a lot of information on the different populations and groups of migratory birds uh, and the timing of them, especially from the work of Ducks Unlimited over the, over the decades. So, you know, I think there's really good opportunity to target um, these geese through the use of hunting and um, and converting them into human food. Along the story of Canada geese, this winter, Southern Ontario had this most amazing ice storm. Um, and amazing in the sense that people were killed. Homes, I saw photographs of homes that were just completely entombed in ice. During that ice storm, when it broke, there were some people found Canada geese that had nestled down in the snow, uh, curled up, you know how they, they tick tuck their beak under their wing and they curl up and, and they weather out a snowstorm. Sometimes the snow will drift up on them and, and they'll just sort of stay there huddled in for the night. Well, they, the geese did this, but given this freak ice storm the geese were actually then entombed in ice and frozen right into the ground and people found this and they found the geese and they rescued them they chiseled them out of out of the ice uh one one rescuer had estimated that the, the geese that they rescued had been frozen on the ground for three days before they rescued them the, you know, there's a couple aspects to this story. One, this whole concept of rescuing animals that have been impacted by these natural events. One of the most common ones we see is animals that break through the ice are struggling in these big kind of rescue uh, attempts that are made to get the animals out. Lots of times they're successful. Here's a case of a natural event where the geese were f frozen into the ground. And so I, philosophically, I kind of find this interesting how we as humans feel compelled um, via compassion to intervene in this natural process of nature taking animals' lives, um, which go to use in some way, shape, or form um, to scavengers and whatnot. So setting that aside, what was really interesting in these two stories was here's a situation where people love the Canada geese and they felt compassion that they had uh, had been frozen into the ground. They were gonna they were gonna die there and they made this this great attempt to chisel these animals out of the ice versus this situation uh, on Vancouver Island where they want to get rid of geese because there's there's too many of them. Uh, a really interesting juxtaposition of this love-hate relationship uh, between the geese. Here's a situation on Vancouver Island where they're impacting agriculture areas so they want to kill and get rid of geese 
versus in southern Ontario, the, the geese were frozen by a freak ice storm. Uh, they weren't doing anything wrong, so people wanted to rescue them. Kind of, kind of an interesting set of bookends to Canada's continuing story of, of the love-hate relationship with Canada geese. A farmer in the central Saanich area uh, was quoted in a story that I read, said anything that is going to get rid of some of these geese were totally for it. And I hope that people are, if they want to continue to get locally produced produce. Then in Southern Ontario, one of the rescuers of the frozen Canada geese said, I was very surprised. It was heartbreaking to see an animal like that. Interesting. What are your thoughts? Are these fair for folks to think separately about Canada geese like this, rescue them in, uh, in a freak situation of being frozen into the ground, but then on the other hand, wanting to get rid of them all because they're uh, destroying agriculture crops. I only think this situation with Canada geese and snow geese in North America is going to continue to get even worse. Um, with more and more geese coming into the population. And there's less and less waterfowl hunters in Canada. Some really interesting statistics out there about, you know, our waterfowl being one of the, the, the guilds of birds in North America that are actually doing well and on the increase. But hunters, waterfowl hunters in Canada are actually declining. Uh, I think we did a, Curtis and I did a podcast on that uh, last year with Matt Besco and Dr. Lee Foote. Uh, so what does the future hold for Canada in using hunting as a means of controlling Canada goose populations in and around these urban settings and, and agriculture settings? I don't know. If the population of hunters is decreasing, fewer birds being taken... Um, and maybe, you know, the governments are going to have to go to contract hunters. Again in Ontario, switching from Canada goose to moose, in Windy Lake Provincial Park in Ontario, uh, just over the last couple weeks, there was a moose living in a particular area of the park that was not taking too kindly to backcountry recreational users going into the park, skiers and uh, hut users and that sort of thing. The news stories were talking about an aggressive moose, quote-unquote, and a moose that was displaying signs of aggression. None of the news stories actually said uh, this was a wintering moose that was actually displaying signs of normal behavior, um, not wanting to get chased and bumped around too much during the wintertime and using up energy. It was uh, a little intolerant of skiers and snowshoers and backcountry users. So they closed the park down, but then they tranquilized the moose and moved the moose to a wild a wildlife rehabilitation facility in Ontario. This blows me away, <laughs> actually. So wildlife doesn't come first in our parks in Canada. Uh, we've seen numerous stories of that on the Round Canada podcast here. People's use of parks always seem to take precedent over wildlife. In this case, the park 
was only shut down so that they could remove the offending moose as opposed to shutting the park down and letting this moose just winter out um, the rest of the year without being disturbed by constant backcountry users going by. But no, it was, the moose was the problem. The moose was aggressive and so the moose had to go. This moose will remain at the wildlife rehab facility for observation before being brought back to the wild. I, I kind of laughed, uh, you know, it's going to be kept for observation. I would hope that maybe they would run the moose through the 12-step program um, to deal with, you know, this uh, uh, unnormal aggressive behavior. Maybe the moose would learn better ways of uh, expressing itself without being aggressive towards humans. And then once it's graduated from the 12-step program, then it could be moved back to the wild uh, where its behavior would be monitored. Uh, if it reverted back, it would be readmitted to the facility for more training and, and rehabilitation. So the park was just closed for a day or so, uh, and then it was reopened um, so that snowshoers, hikers, cross-country skiers could access the chalets and yurts in the park. I have not heard what's happened to, to the poor moose, uh, how long it's going to spend under quote-unquote observation, and when it's brought back to the wild, does it get to go back to its home? in Windy Lake Provincial Park, or is it going to be moved to some place far outside of its um, normal, normal home range? All right, speaking of moose, this is not a story of a moose misbehaving. This is a story of a hunter misbehaving. In 2020, a hunter in Ontario shot and killed uh, a cow moose. There was a big investigation from the Conservation Officer Service in Ontario. Very lengthy investigation. They used canine detection dogs. They had to do um, ballistic forensics examination. They executed a search warrant and it all boiled down to charges being laid against a person uh, that went into uh, before a judge just before Christmas was charged with illegally hunting the moose and a judge issued $15,000 in fines uh, in addition to uh, having his hunting license cancelled and prohibited from hunting in Ontario for two years. Now 15000 is quite a bit. We saw a story uh, about a person in Whistler that was feeding bears that was initially charged with 60000 uh, and that was down downgraded quite a bit by an appeal in court. Uh, 15000 is is quite a bit of cash for the average person. I always wonder whether or not they actually pay it. Uh, you know, if that money's actually collected or not, I would have to assume it is or somebody would end up in jail. But you know, you always read these stories and even at $15,000, you always see the comments where people think that that's still not enough. That's not enough of a deterrent. A pickup truck costs $90,000. An illegally shot moose is only, only $15,000 in fines. Uh, people get upset about 
hunting licenses being suspended for uh, only a year or two. In this case, it was two years. People are like, no, it should be a lifetime ban on hunting. These are really interesting, you know, stories. And this is why I like to throw them in here once in a while when I see these court cases uh, so we can talk about the fines and the prohibitions. One of the things that's interesting about this prohibition is it's a prohibition for hunting in Ontario. I need to I need to do a bit of research on this. If if any of you that are listening know this for sure, uh, write and let me know. But is there reciprocity amongst the provinces if this fellow was has a prohibition from hunting in Ontario? Can that person move to neighboring Quebec and get a hunting license there and hunt for that two-year period and then go back to Ontario? Or would the fact that they've had their hunting license canceled in Ontario, that would mean that they're not eligible for a hunting license anywhere else in Canada because they don't hold a valid hunting license in another province? I don't know if it works that way in Canada, to be absolutely honest. Like I know the hunter training courses are transferable from province to province. So if you've taken your initial hunter training course in British Columbia, you move to Alberta, or you go there as a non-resident and you're going to hunt, you show proof that you've taken a hunter training program. It was the BC one. The Alberta government is, yes, that meets our standards. And so you're eligible for a hunting license. But I don't know the situation for a resident hunter if their license has been canceled or they're under a prohibition in one province if that is upheld in other provinces. I'm going to have to do a little bit more digging on that one. But if you know, write me. Let me know. $15,000. Hmm. I'm going to keep an eye on that story, see if it's appealed, and uh, if that fine is upheld in a subsequent appeal. I hope it is. Back in Vancouver, just early this year, uh, in the North Vancouver area, in a park called Myrtle Fraser Park, a park user found a trap that was set in the park. Trapping is not allowed in the park, like commercial trapping, and so it was deemed to be illegal. It was reported to the BC Conservation Officer Service, and they've gone into investigate they did a bunch of sweeps of the air other areas in the park and did not find any other illegally set traps just this one the story the most recent story i've read in this they're not releasing what kind of trap it is so there's three possible types of traps there would be a foot restraining trap there would be a body grip gripping killing trap and a uh, killing snare trap. They haven't said uh, what type of trap that's being investigated here or what it was set for. I guess it could be a raccoon trap, uh, but I'm kind of, you know, reading between the lines of everything that's been going on with coyotes. Different places, British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario, kind of the the issues of urban coyotes and I, I I would if I had money I would put some money down that this is a situation where somebody is frustrated with 
coyotes in park areas, near settled areas, or where they walk their dogs. And another person has taken this into their own hands and they're setting a trap. Maybe it's some crazy person that's trying to catch dogs and they're upset by people going into the park and maybe taking their dogs off leash when they're not supposed to. Uh, I don't know, but it's concerning. Uh, you know, in the last episode, you know, we, we covered a story about an illegally set trap in Prince Edward Island that led to the death of peop uh, some people's um, pet dog on their own property. So this, this seems to be a bit of a trend. And this is why I'm covering this story, because I'm seeing a few more of these stories popping up here and there. The bobcat with its foot in a trap in Calgary. Again, if I had money to bet on it, I think that was a frustrated property owner um, that just bought a trap from Cabela's and set it and laid it on the ground. And, you know, the bobcat stepped in it. Uh, I've seen other stories of snares that were, you know, illegally set in, in park areas. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just kind of keeping my eye on the theme of these stories of illegally set traps be interesting to try to learn more who's doing it and what their motives are because these stories hit the news and the anti-trapping groups always try to blame commercial trappers for it so we like to like to get a little more details on some of these illegal trapping uh, stories that I cover now in Myrtle Fraser Park in the North Vancouver area, they are actively legally trapping in the park, but they're trying to capture and relocate a beaver that's been gnawing on quote unquote local trees. Damn beaver in a park. Unacceptable, especially ones that chew on local trees. Gotta catch them, gotta move them. They can be somebody else's problem. A park is no place for a beaver. Uh, okay, so speaking of beavers, being where they're not supposed to be, beavers in Nunavut, apparently beavers are expanding in North America into the Arctic tundra regions both in Canada and Alaska. A study published in 2020 in the Journal of Environmental Research, uh, scientists said that beavers were starting to colonize low Arctic tundra regions in Alaska and Canada. Recently, locals in Nunavut have been raising the concerns about increasing populations of beavers in and around Nunavut and they're getting into water systems and plugging up water systems that used to be historically good fishing rivers for like arctic char that are migrating in um, to to spawn and whatnot and people are noticing that the beavers are starting to kind of mess up the ecosystem and that they have not been there you know historically Locals in Nunavut quoted in one of the stories I read that said that they've actually been noticing this uh, encroachment of beavers into Nunavut, you know, or that area of the north going all the way back into the 1970s and, and 80s. Of course, Nunavut, Nunavut was established uh, later than that. But 
I was actually kind of blown away that that was a relatively new phenomenon for beavers to be into the Arctic tundra regions. You know, I just think of the, you know, the scrub birch, the willow ecosystems, all the waterways and wetlands and everything in uh, the low tundra regions, thinking that beaver would have just been you know, a natural part of their natural historic range and that maybe they were wiped out during the fur trade and they're starting to recolonize. But everything that I've read into this story is that this is a relatively new phenomenon phenomenon that uh, the beavers expanding this far north past the tree line in, into the tundra region. I did a quick little look, you know, trying to ascertain if beaver made up part of the historic fur trade in Canada's uh, Arctic region. It's kind of hard to deduce this. So of course, none of it was part, uh, was, was sort of carved off of what used to be the Northwest Territories. One source that I read said between the year 1670 and 1930, the fur trade in the central area of the Northwest Territories thrived on beaver, mink, marten, and lynx. I looked at an old map of the Northwest Territories and the central Northwest Territories would have actually been part of none of it. Then I did a little bit more digging. In 1670 through into the 1800s, almost the entire central part of Canada was actually called the Northwest Territories, all the way down to the U.S. border. Uh, Manitoba was just uh, uh, was like a little square jurisdiction. Uh, British Columbia was established, but the Yukon was considered part of the Northwest Territories. So was Ontario and Quebec, and all the way into the uh, towards the Atlantic provinces. So when they say that beaver, uh, the fur industry thrived on beaver, if, you know, from the 1600s to the early 1900s in the central Northwest Territories, and they're probably talking basically about central Canada and the boreal forest region, not the low Arctic tundra regions of the Northwest Territories and none of it that we know today. So interesting story. What are they going to do with beavers moving into none of it? they going to get rid of them? Are they going to try to halt them? Or are they going to try to manage them via trapping and especially on high value salmon and Arctic char uh, rivers in none of it? Um, we'll see what the coming year holds for the future of beavers in none of it. There is a fungal disease. Uh, in North America called white nose syndrome and it's a fungal disease that gets into wild bat populations. This disease has been in eastern Canada uh, for quite some time. It first appeared in North America way back in 2006 in New York State. They think it was a disease that came in uh, via the shipping industry uh, so it came from somewhere else in the world and bats living in North America had no immunity against it. It's made its first appearance in Alberta uh, just recently. Researchers have found evidence of the white nose syndrome, the, the fungus, in Alberta. In eastern North America the disease uh, has been around for the last 20 years 
and it's decreased bat populations by about 90 percent i mean that's that's shocking i mean that is that is literally putting wild bats at risk of of extinction in north america this fungal disease it was found in saskatchewan in 2021 and then just recently it was found that it had expanded westward uh, into Alberta. So the way white nose syndrome works, the disease, what it does is the fungus gets onto the bats while they're hibernating in their hibernaculum where they're all jammed together uh, in the winter. What it does is it infects the bat's skins one article I read sort of said it's sort of similar to like athlete's foot it gets on the bat's skin and then it starts the fungus starts to eat away at the skin and then it causes the bat to come the irritation causes the bat to come out of hibernation and then their bodies aren't able to deal with an infection because they're hibernating. Um, they're supposed to be conserving energy, but the, the irritation of the fungus is firing up their metabolism. It's causing the bats to burn more energy. They're awake during the wintertime when they're supposed to be conserving energy and hibernating. And basically what happens is the bats starve to death in the hibernacula over the wintertime and entire colonies, you know, get wiped out over the course of the wintertime. Uh, because uh, the fungus gets introduced into the colony from from an infected bat or two uh, before they go into hibernation. So, man, crazy story. Uh, but anyways, it it's a phenomenon that's been around for a while in uh, the bat population, but it's now made its way all the way over into Alberta. I don't know whether or not they found incidents of it in uh, British Columbia. It seems to me a few years ago, I may have heard, I'd have to confirm this about a story or two on the lower mainland, uh, but I don't know if it's made its way through the Rocky Mountains uh, into British Columbia. You know, then it's just got to start spreading north and it's, you know, it's going to take over the entire North American range of of bats and apparently it affects all the species of bats um, doesn't just target um, you know the little brown myotis or, or or whatever species it it's indiscriminate and it gets after all the bat species so kind of speaking on the the gruesome story of diseases getting into uh, wild population so there's this disease i've talked a little bit about it before called the rabbit hemorrhagic disease or rhd it's a really contagious lethal virus that gets into domestic rabbits or it's usually in domestic rabbits um, so they had there was an outbreak in and around calgary uh, last fall of rabbit hemorrhagic disease i think in sort of all the feral rabbits that were running around in, in the city just recently they confirmed in the feral rabbit population around the community of canmore alberta in the rocky mountains of the rabbit hemorrhagic disease in the feral population that's living in and around the town in canmore a uh, couple cases of dead rabbits that they confirmed was um, hemorrhagic disease. There's also been some confirmed cases, uh, just a few, in the native mountain cottontail 
rabbits in Alberta as well. Banff National Park is quite concerned uh, about its hare sh- uh, snowshoe hare and pika population of the uh, hemorrhagic disease making its way up out of Canmore into the national parks. As I, I think I recall from one of the stories, they don't have a feral rabbit problem in Banff National Park. Uh, but what I do understand about this disease is I'm pretty sure it can be transported via the soil on people's shoes or on their clothing. So, of course, Banff National Park being so close to Canmore, there's bike trails that connect it and people going back and forth that the chances of some contaminated clothing uh, or soil on shoes or boots or something being the way that the hemorrhagic disease makes its way into the national park uh, could be devastating for the um, snowshoe hare pika populations in Banff National Park. I'm sure folks in Banff National Park were wishing maybe that it could get into the ground squirrel colony that's in the graveyards uh, because that would kind of take care of the problem in a cost-effective way there. But seems like folks uh, like the snowshoe hares and pikas in Banff National Park, just not the ground squirrels digging up cemeteries. Hopefully rabbit hemorrhagic disease doesn't continue to kind of expand in Alberta. Uh, hopefully it doesn't go any more into the cottontail population or make its way into the snowshoe hare population. A couple of years ago, Curtis and I did a podcast on snowshoe hares with a couple of snowshoe hare researchers out of Canada. And and one of the things that really struck me um, from what we learned from them is we always hear these stories about keystone species and how the apex predators are like the keystone species in ecosystems and they regulate everything, wolves and grizzly bears. However, in the boreal forest, the scientists were saying that the keystone species that regulates just about all life in the boreal forest is the snowshoe hare. That would be absolutely devastating for rabbit hemorrhagic disease to make it into the snowshoe hare because they're fundamental to the food chain and a tremendous amount of wildlife species up and down uh, the, the line in the boreal forest. So let's save the keystone snowshoe hare and keep rabbit hemorrhagic disease out of the boreal forest in the Rocky Mountains of Canada. All right, pesky deer. In Nova Scotia, they have experienced, uh, around the communities of, uh, community of Truro, they've experienced huge explosion in their white-tailed deer population. They have an average of six deer per square kilometer, which is uh, double what sort of natural densities for white-tailed deer are uh, at about three per square kilometer. Uh, back in 2020, when the municipalities were trying to figure out a strategy on what they were going to do with um, with their their growing deer population and the impacts they were having on um, everything from you know car collisions to you know eating on people's lawns and uh, flowers and all, all that sort of stuff. 53% of residents voted in favor of a controlled hunt. Just recently, the town of Truro had its second 
hunt where they took 39 white-tailed deer around Truro and Millbrook. Now, the interesting thing about this story was the removal, the hunting, was led by First Nations. They harvested uh, just recently in uh, November, December. They harvested 39 deer and put about 700 pounds of venison into their community, to their elders and other people in the community. And the really cool part of this story, uh, so, so first of all, I really like, you know, this idea of using hunting for managing these urban wildlife and then using the harvested animals just like we would in hunting. That just, just really speaks to me as a logical, sensical thing to do in these situations rather than this whole idea of, of coexistence and, and um, sterilizing the deer and, you know, um, it's unethical to, you know, hunt and shoot and, and eat and stuff the deer. And gosh, I mean, there's a lot of white-tailed deer living in the urban areas, you know, where I live here in BC. And it's just like time and time again this winter. It's just like I see dead deer on the side of the road, busted deer. The other night I drove by uh, one that was, you know, lay, the whole back leg and stuff was smacked and it was still alive. It's just coexistence means the deer are going to suffer uh, and they're going to suffer really horrible deaths like that one did the last week that I saw that was, you know, had its back leg ripped off basically and, and then it ended up bleeding out and dying. So in this situation, in Truro, Nova Scotia, man, they just went in and they harvested a bunch of animals, knocked their population down. Uh, it was all archery hunting, crossbows and compound bows. That's completely uh, humane and ethical and lethal, in my opinion, and experience. And First Nations were involved in, in going in and, and taking the lead on removing these animals. So, so that's a really, to me, a really feel-good part of this story. Uh, I'm super excited that Nova Scotia embraced this whole thing of, of hunting to be their primary tool. And the other cool part about this story was, as the First Nations communities used this as an opportunity to get their kids out on the land, the youth out on the land, and be there for the harvest and the processing of the animals, um, the skinning, and setting the hides aside and cleaning them and taking out edible organs and processing the meat and then delivering all of those goods back to the community members and their elders and stuff. And just uh, what a, what a feel-good story. Way to go, Nova Scotia, and way to go, First Nations you know, stepping in and making this your own uh, and not buying into <laughs> this whole coexisting with the deer in the urban areas and living with the problems and seeing deer, you know, run over uh, and, and, and the meat being wasted and, and, and really invasive things like, um, you know, trying to sterilize deer and doing surgery on them and, you know, and all those sorts of stuff. So, just a straight out good old fashioned venison harvest. What a great way to handle six deer per square kilometer. We'll see if it works. You know, these deer populations tend to explode. The ability of people to actually have a large enough harvest 
40 sounds like a lot of animals, but it may not have been enough to actually reduce the, the, the density. I don't know, but you got to keep up on it because, boy, white-tailed deer can sure, sure reproduce quickly. Twin, uh, they have the ability to become reproductively ready at 10 months of age if the white-tailed deer are in really good forage and the fawns are large. Come fall, a 10-month-old fawn can be bred and reproduce. So that's one of the reasons why their population can and explode. Hopefully folks in Nova Scotia are able to exponentially grow their, their urban hunts uh, if the deer populations continue to rise. But 700 pounds of deer venison in Nova Scotia, urban hunt, cool cool that kids were involved. In Ontario, in uh, Point Pelee National Park was closed down um, for a cull, the deer population cull as well. Um, Parks Canada was working with the Caldwell First Nations in this case um, to manage the deer population. That was just two days ago uh, was when they wrapped that up. January 20th is uh, when the, the harvest ended, uh, the park was closed, and then they expected the park to reopen on the 21st. So the decision in the national park uh, was based on about 30 years of research and monitoring that was done between academics in the Caldwell First Nation and Parks Canada. They basically said that the park can support a healthy population of 24 to 32 deer uh, where they are running almost again double the number of deer in the national park so they're having a they were having a significant impact on the natural ecosystems uh, plant communities that was um, the basis for the, the deer cull and then again involving the First Nations. So the animals that were being harvested were being put to use. Another really cool story. I'm really excited to hear of these um, urban wildlife problems being dealt with in my opinion, ethical ways which is harvesting the animals and making use of the food and the, you know, the fur and leather resources that animals provide. Going back to the first, you know, Canada goose story, I've never liked the idea of the egg-addling thing as a process of controlling the population. I would much rather, again, see a situation where we're harvesting juvenile, sub-adult, and adult birds giving those to people in the community to to eat all right cool stories write me if you got any uh thoughts on these or some stories that you would like to to have covered on the round canada podcast i love hearing from folks about uh trending stories a lot of people write me and say hey did you see this story or did you see that story looks like it would be a good one for the round canada podcast i really appreciate that love hearing from you um, even hearing your thoughts on some of these stories. Um, I'm only providing my perspective and don't have guests that often on the show for different perspectives. So let me know what your thoughts are. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.